0: back to the Haddonfield Report. Today, we are diving into one of my favorite movies of all time, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. As you know, I didn't address this movie in my franchise ranking. I just, literally, I couldn't think of any logical way to put this batshit crazy movie in a conversation with a Michael Myers movie. They're not even, like, remotely on the same playing fields. You, You can't really compare quality between the two. Uh, To use a cliche, it's apples and oranges, and to use another cliche, this is the black sheep of the franchise, but in a lot of ways, it makes so much sense being included in Carpenter's Halloween anthology series, which obviously never happened. I think it would have been awesome, but I'm also glad we got more Michael Myers, so eh, whatever. Here's the thing about Halloween 3. This is a very cynical movie, maybe the most cynical of the whole franchise, and I'm going to keep coming back to that idea as we go. This is a very cynical movie, and Carpenter is one of the most cynical filmmakers out there. That's what separated him from a guy like Steven Spielberg, right? In the 80s, everybody in America fucking adored Steven Spielberg, and I get it. Great movies, but nothing pisses me off more than the fact that Carpenter was at a disadvantage in terms of critical and audience reception and box office performance because he wasn't Spielberg. The fact that The Thing was a bomb because people just wanted hopeful stuff like E.T., that to me is incredibly infuriating. Um, and, And it's honestly, it's a reminder that audiences, they're not exactly the ultimate arbiters of true cinematic merit. Look, I'm not trying to be a film stop. I'm not. But audiences get a lot of shit wrong. I don't think we can deny that. Rejecting The Thing for being too dark and, and wishing that you would get more hopeful, family-friendly shit like E.T. Is, is idiotic and wrong. And I have nothing against E.T. I think it's a great movie. But it should not. It should not. It should not be in the same conversation as The Thing. Audiences get movies Wrong And and sometimes, sometimes I have deja vu when I see how some of, uh, let's say, Zack Snyder's superhero movies have been rejected because they lack the lighthearted, quote-unquote, fun of the MCU. Anyway, that's for another time. I don't want to piss you off yet. Uh, I, I need at least one listener. Um, all of this is to say, audiences get shit wrong. And sometimes you go back years later and reevaluate. And somehow, I don't know how, but my my rambling little rant actually did uh, lead us back to Halloween 3, which we all know was hated upon its release, but now it's kind of developed a huge cult following. Um, the first time that this movie was brought to my attention was by my dad. I forget how old I was, and, and I forget... You know, I had discovered Halloween 1978 at that point. He had shown that to me uh, <laughs> without my mom knowing. But I can't exactly remember, you know, how long after my introdu- um, introduction introduction to Michael Myers, my dad told me about Halloween 3. Um, I do remember, as a boy, I knew about Halloween 2. I knew it took place in a hospital, which, you know, as a boy, I thought that was cool. I thought that was spooky. Uh, Halloween 4, I'd seen bits and pieces of it on AMC uh, I remember, and and I'll talk about this more next week. But I remember that scene with Jamie in her bedroom at the beginning of the movie when when Michael is there. Which maybe it's just a dream sequence. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know. Now I look at it and I think, uh, you know, I like this, but the mask looks awful. It's not scary. You know. Back then, I thought that was the scariest thing I've ever seen. Um, but you know, so I, I had familiarity with the franchise, but I. Really was not familiar with Halloween three, um, and and I remember I remember my dad telling me, yeah, Halloween three it was it was a really stupid movie. Michael Myers isn't even in it. It's about it's about this company that sells Halloween masks that, that and they're gonna kill all the kids in America. I remember that's like verbatim that's what he told me. Uh, <laughs> and I remember being so intrigued by that because that's so weird. Like you, you have the Halloween franchise that's Michael Myers. What? There's a movie about a, an evil mask maker that's going to kill kids in America? I need to see that. I've always been drawn to the weird stuff. Um, you know, in, in everything I do, I look for the weird because that tells you something uh, about artists, right? And, and Halloween 3 tells us something about John Carpenter and tells us something about the filmmakers behind this. And we're kind of going to dig into it. It's a fascinating movie. Um, even when I was a kid, before I was getting into, like, film analysis and watching movies and understanding them, picking them apart, dissecting them, you know, even before that point, just the concept of Halloween 3 sounded like something I needed to see, um, and I didn't really get why my dad was so angry at it. I liked Michael Myers, but it sounded interesting. It sounded cool. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I was intrigued by that, but I grew up, you know, I forgot that we even had that conversation, and then one day... I was in high school, and I turned on AMC. It was, you know, Fear Fest. It was around Halloween time, and they were showing Halloween 3. And you know what? I really liked the fucking movie. I remember, you know, my dad had told me all these years, oh, it's a stupid movie, a stupid movie. I liked the movie. I disagreed with him. Um, it was the first time I had seen Tom Atkins in anything. I thought he was the man. You know, not, not because he plays a good guy here. He just, he exudes this... This distinctive '80s masculinity, and and um, you know the movie. I thought the atmosphere had had you know atmosphere that felt worthy of a Carpenter film. I thought I thought there was social commentary that was interesting. Um, I thought, and I continue to think, most of these things. I thought Dan O'Hurley's performance as Connell Cochrane I thought it was legitimately great. Um, and and all of a sudden, watching Halloween three on AMC became a yearly tradition. Uh, I, I would I would literally, I would wait for AMC to show Halloween 3 again, and that became like, you know it's Halloween time if we're watching Halloween 3. Um, in fact, in my house, it became a running joke. My dad, he he made fun of me, you know, for those three or four years that, you know, in, in high school when I would sit and I would watch Halloween 3 every year. But you know what? I have finally gotten to a place, um, gotten my dad to a place, where he can acknowledge that if you look at this thing on its own merits it's actually not a bad movie now he says not a bad movie he can enjoy it. he thinks it's entertaining i think it's a great movie but you know i'm not con- i'm not expecting to convince a lot of people of that the movie yes it's bizarre it's crazy sure it's not perfect but in my opinion this is a bold statement i'm full of bold statements yeah whatever I feel like this is one of the greatest movies of the 80s, and not enough people talk about it. So, let's get into the movie. I'm really excited about this. Um, And, you know, I truly, I did not plan on starting every one of these reviews, um, or, I I don't know. I I don't know what you want to call them. I don't know that these are actually reviews, but whatever. But I didn't expect to start every one by analyzing the opening credits as a microcosm for the movie, but I kind of like it now, so... It's just going to be a thing, at least for this franchise. I think it works for this franchise. Um, now, these opening credits with the pumpkin that's being produced on a computer monitor, I think these credits actually do. They say a lot about this movie because I think without a doubt, this to me is a top three credit sequence from this franchise, even though you know it doesn't get the respect it deserves. Kind of like the movie keeping the jack-o'-lantern a part of the opening credits, it means that you've acknowledged the kind of creative debt that you owe to the two predecessors. Um, and it, it reaffirms to us that we are still in the same franchise, but obviously the computerized twist, it lets us in on the secret that this isn't some story about, you know, a maybe supernatural stalker going after teenage girls. This is a movie that is an exploration of the impending computer age. And, and that to me, the credits... Q. S. us, you know, they, they clue us into that. And that is such a promising start. You add to it the incredible score from Carpenter and from Alan Howarth, uh, which is especially appropriate in this movie. Think about it. It's a synthesized score. It's produced basically on a computer. In a movie that is concerned in some way with the rise of these technological juggernaut corporations, you, you, you have a brilliant opening credit sequence here, right? You put the visual... And and the music together, it's a brilliant opening. Um, I watched this movie, and I wish I could have seen it on a big screen. Unfortunately, you know, I think it's it's such a polarizing movie that I'm not sure that that I'll ever have the opportunity to see it on a big screen. Um, but I'm I'm definitely always on the lookout. Um, I've I've a lot of like cool drive-in theaters, like an hour or, or two away from me. In the past, they've done things like Friday the Thirteenth marathons. Um, you know, stuff like that. So maybe one of these years, who knows? You know, they, they might do a Halloween marathon and, and show this movie. Um, because here's here's why that matters so much to me. And, and I am very much a theater purist. And at some point here, I think I do want to comment in one of these podcasts on the current situation with Halloween Kills. I know there's a lot of debate going on with video on demand versus um, a theatrical showing. Um, but I, I am a purist and and... This movie is is a great example of that. I love this movie. I've always watched it at home, though. And I feel as though I am missing out on some part of the experience because of that. You have to realize, um, if, if you kind of read into this movie a little bit, the opening credits and all the Silver Shamrock commercials in the movie, they were designed for a big screen. I forget now. I can't remember who said it. But... Someone said that when they were making this movie, they almost wanted these visuals to kind of like fuck you up, make you a little um, disoriented. And that's what the big screen does. You're stuck in this theater. You are seeing these flashing images on the screen in front of you. It makes you feel disoriented. It's it's actually, it's a completely different experience in that context. And I don't think you get that at home. So I would love to see it on the big screen. Not sure that I'm going to. Um, but again, you never know. We are... Starting to reevaluate movies. I have a lot of cool theaters around. Maybe it'll happen. Who knows? Um, of course, this was Tommy Lee Wallace's first effort at directing. And I gotta say, I wish that we'd gotten more from him. Uh, I know he also directed the, the made-for-TV It movie, as you know. And, and look, I know that is a flawed movie. And maybe this is just nostalgia speaking. But there's a real charm to the original that... I think the new it movies lack. Um, you know, are, are they as scary? I don't know. But I'm glad that they don't use CGI in the same way. Nobody likes the spider, sure. But again, I think I think there's a real charm. Um, I know he also directed Fright Night Part 2, which I haven't seen. Um, but you know what? Here's the thing about Tommy Lee Wallace and why I think he should have gotten more work. Um, you know, I'll watch a movie like Friday the 13th Part 3, and for the most part, I'll think... You know, man, that that it really wasn't directed very well at all. It, it's not not very artful. It just feels like it was thrown together by Paramount, and there was very little thought put in, in, in into shooting, which honestly is probably true. But then Steve Miner, he ended up having a career. He was even hired to direct Halloween h 20 you know. Um, but I mean, come on, Tommy Lee Wallace. You know, even if his direction is flawed. I think I think his direction. I think it has a bit of character that I don't see in some of these other B movies from the '80s. So I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. I think he does a nice job here. Um, I do think he's doing a little bit of a Carpenter impression with the help of Dean Cundey, but um, nonetheless, I think I think this is a guy who doesn't get all the respect uh, he deserves. One thing, one thing that that I love about this movie is that it starts on October 23rd. I always thought it was kind of dumb to limit yourself to one night. Why not give yourself a few days to work with? That way you can kind of build a larger plot, maybe build some tension and stakes in the lead-up to Halloween, right? It doesn't just have to be one night. I get that, you know, it's kind of simple. You keep things simple, you know, put it on on Halloween. Um, But it, it always seemed like we could build up to Halloween and kind of build a larger plot. I like this movie does that. Um, and, and again, for the record, I think you could do that with a Michael Myers movie. Um, you know, it kind of, it would prove that Michael isn't just sitting around the other 364 days of the year waiting for Halloween, you know, to go out and kill people. And, and by the way, this is something, something interesting that I, I was just thinking about the other day. We already know Michael doesn't just kill on Halloween because, um, if, if you, if you overthink it a little bit. Halloween 2, which I just talked about last week, Halloween 2 takes place on November 1st. (laughs) Think about that. Um, I read somewhere that that the movie takes place roughly between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. Okay, well, Halloween is over, so it's November 1st. I I don't know why. I find that really cool. I think I'm just a nerd. But anyway, yes, we give ourselves ourselves a good, solid week here in Halloween 3 to watch the story unfold. And I like that. Uh, Also, also note that it starts in Northern California. There is your hint that this is a Carpenter movie. The guy loves California. I know Joe Bob Briggs complained about the fact, you know, he was very biased against this when it was on Monster Vision, and I'll come back to that at the end here, but uh, he complained that it wasn't in Haddonfield. It's in California. Most of of Carpenter's movies take place in California. In actuality, uh, Haddonfield is, is, uh, is an outlier. in in his filmography the opening chase sequence in this movie is some really really good shit obviously the soundtrack it's pitch perfect um you know this track it's called chariots of pumpkins which (laughs) uh it it feels like a really cheesy nod or i don't know a fuck you maybe to chariots of fire cheesy but i love it um this opening scene—it's also where we feel Dean Kundys' influence. Obviously, this is the last Halloween movie that he does the cinematography for, um, and I think I think that Kundys' work makes a world of influence, uh, makes a world of difference, I should say. I think, you know, the the opening chase—it feels a lot like Christine to me, which would make sense because that came out a year later in 1983. But that off-putting, that cool blue tone, it's on display here, and it's its awesome. The one thing I will say about this opening, and about the movie, I just, I don't find the robots scary. I, I don't know what it says about me, but for the most part, you know, obviously the robots, we don't know they're robots till later in the movie. They just look like human beings, and that's kind of the point. I don't know what it says about me. I don't find a human being to be all that scary when I'm watching a horror movie. You know, and and I know, I know, realistically, human beings are the ones that that we should be afraid of. You know, Michael Myers probably isn't going to break into my house tonight and and skin me alive. But if I were an audience member watching in 1982, not knowing, one, that these guys are robots, and two, that Michael Myers isn't in this thing, I don't think I'd be all that scared of these guys. So I I can kind of understand why people would have been pissed to not have Michael in in the movie. It's a shitty thing for the studio, you know, to not advertise his absence. But I'm really not going to be talking about that in this episode. We all know Michael Myers isn't in this movie. And I think I think it's wrong for that to play any role in our assessment of this thing. So I'm not going to do it. One thing about these podcasts, I try not to spend too much time talking about the shit that gets talked about all time. The time, but I will just say, I love the stupid Silver Shamrock commercials. The London Bridge is falling down. The eight more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. I hate them, but that's also kind of the point. Um, I had mentioned that this might be the most cynical movie in the franchise. I think it is the most cynical movie in the franchise, um, and I have a lot to support that claim. And I'm going to keep coming back to it. But here's my first piece of evidence. Think of this stupid fucking cheesy ad with a stupid song being run by a Halloween mask maker. Somehow this thing, this stupid cheesy ad for Halloween masks becomes a phenomenon in the United States. And kids have to have these masks. I feel like there is this very dark view of humanity on display here. You know, people are just mindless drones who are ready to go to, to follow, um, ready to conform, even if the catalyst for that is this awful ad with a cheesy jingle for ugly Halloween masks. This movie feels, you know, if I'm thinking about Carpenter, this feels like a pre a precursor to something like They Live. And honestly, I actually think this movie is far darker than that one. I'm telling you guys, and I'm going to keep saying it, I'll keep coming back to it, this is, this is the darkest, it's the most cynical movie of the whole franchise by far. And where else do we see the cynicism? Look at the movie's protagonist. To me, this is one of the best parts of the movie. I love, 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 love Tom Atkins. But Dan Chalice is an absolute piece of shit. And somehow... He's kind of a lovable piece of shit, which I think is only thanks to Atkins and and this natural charisma that he brings to the movie. He really does. He elevates the movie. By the way, if you haven't watched Night of the Creeps, what are you doing? That, I think that's my favorite Atkins performance. But anyway, that's besides the point. People complain about how shitty Atkins is um, as a character, but this movie, it's not glorifying his character. Right? Again, cynicism. This is a movie that wants to look at modern 80s society and say, fuck you, you are broken. This guy feels like an 80s dad and here's the issue with that. Say what you will, but I do think the dads have made some improvements since the 80s. You look at this guy. He's, I I think it's implied that he's an alcoholic. He's divorced from his wife. He's a deadbeat dad. He's not around for his kids. He says he's busy with, with, with work, but really he's just a womanizer. And even when he is going into work, he's like fucking spanking Nurse Agnes. And and by the way, take a close look at Nurse Agnes, okay? Um th- this guy is is going after anything he can find. So, you got a problem here. And that's Dan Chalice. And and you know what? I reject the notion that this movie is like celebrating this guy. I I I don't think the movie is so self-serious as, as to be like this is an indictment of him and, and of toxic masculinity or or whatever. No, 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 no. No, I I don't I don't I don't think we're we're going down that road. But I do think the filmmakers are aware that their their quote unquote hero is a dick. And I think that says a lot about how this movie views humanity. Um I would also note that his wife, who's who's played by my pa, Nancy Keys, uh, she's not exactly, or Nancy Loomis, uh, is not exactly depicted as an angel. She's she's like a, a very whiny, naggy woman. So again, very dark vision of humanity. I don't. I think almost everybody in the movie is unlikable. I don't think everybody in the movie is unlikable, but the people who are likable. Um, I'll talk about this more with Ellie, but I think there becomes a reason for us to not like them, and I think that some of the other likable people are barely in the movie. One person I love. I love the gas station attendant. You know, I I, I like... He, he keeps asking, there's not going to be any trouble, is there? Um, and then he just like backs away and gets the fuck out of that hospital. He's a smart guy. He's the smartest guy in the movie. But even he is is like, you know, he's looking out for himself. So... I don't know. I think there are caveats to anybody in the movie who is likable. The first kill in this movie, um, when the robot takes out Harry Grimbridge, it's a great scene. I should stop saying it, because I guess at this point it's just a given, but obviously the soundtrack here is perfect. Uh, (laughs) I also laugh every time I see that he's in Room 13, because of course he is. But two things. The kill itself, it always confuses me a little bit. It always feels like he just killed him by... Breaking his nose or something like that, and I can't tell. I can't tell if the MPAA watered it down or if it wasn't directed well. I don't know, but it's just—it's never exactly clear how the robot killed him. Um, also, <laughs> my best friend and I—we love the moment when the robot wipes his bloody gloves on the window curtains. Who knew that, that robots were so concerned about cleanliness? But also, if he's a robot. Does he have have fingerprints? Uh, I know some people think, you know, maybe all the robots were originally humans, just like Ellie, who was probably originally a human but was turned into a robot later. I don't know. Don't want to think too much about that. I just find it so funny for some reason when the robot decides, oh, shit, my gloves are bloody. Let me wipe them off on this curtain. Um, Which, by the way, now somebody has to clean that up, so thanks, dude. Nonetheless, it's a great opening, and it's an awesome what-the-fuck moment. When when the guy douses himself with gas and and blows the car up. I do think if I were watching this in 1982 and I didn't know what was going on, I I think I would have been absolutely mind-fucked by this movie. If, of course, I had an open mind about the lack of Michael Myers. If. And then we learn that Dr. Chalice also has a thing going on with Teddy, the coroner. So this guy gets around. Um and he hits on her. It's actually pretty awkward. Go back watch the scene. I don't know if it's supposed to be that awkward, but it is. At one point they like they they both talk over each other. They like cut each other off, and then they don't, they don't have anything to say. Um, it's it's so weird to me. And maybe that's how it was scripted. But it also feels like it feels like maybe they just improvised it. And Tommy Lee Wallace was like, "Yep, we'll go with it." Um, <laughs> I kind of like it. It adds some charm. Actually, adds some. Um, you know, it feels like a genuine moment. But I'm not sure if that was scripted or not. I just can't tell. And if I haven't said it enough, by the way, this is a cynical fucking movie. What the fuck is the cartoon that's playing in the bar? What the fuck is that supposed to be? But again, this is a world in which people will submit to watching anything and they'll take it complacently. Yeah, I guess cartoons are are, are on at the bar because people are just morons who will sit there and and drink their life away and, and just let their Brains be turned into... I don't don't know. Fortunately, at some point, Chalice says, fuck it, you gotta change the channel. But that doesn't change the fact that, again, apparently that bar was running stupid shit like this all day. And it's not just a dumb little thing. It does feel like a reflection of how the movie views the world. You just... like We got a world full of of morons who are looking to get drunk and let our brains melt while we watch garbage on TV. (laughs) Brains melt. Well... That becomes a little more literal later. Uh, <laughs> I that, not intended at all. Of course, The Bartender does change the channel. We get our first glimpse of the original Halloween. First of all, if you were watching this movie and you still... I don't care if this is 1982 and you don't know anything going into it. If you're watching this movie and you still don't get the hint at this point that Michael Myers wasn't going to be in this movie... You're an idiot. (laughs) That's a pretty explicit indication that this movie takes place in reality, and Halloween 1978 is fictional. But also, how do I feel about this? Um, Some people people think that this is unnecessary and over-the-top. I kind of like it, insofar as I think it's an interesting meta-commentary. Remember, this is a movie about a lot of things. But one thing that it's definitely about is the commercialization of Halloween. Conal Cochran's, you know, he's got this this long, dramatic monologue later in the movie where he bemoans the fact that Halloween has turned into this mainstream thing marketed to kids and families. And I feel like Halloween, uh, the movie, I feel like the movie's inclusion in all of this says we, the Halloween filmmakers, we are part of that trend, right? We are part of what Connell Cochran views as the problem. We are part of this commercialization of something that started off being much different. I think this even goes so far as to suggest that the whole franchise and the movie you are watching is part of what Connell Cochran sees as the problem. And, and, you know, that that even the very movie you're watching in some ways is, is helping us ignore the roots of the holiday until the end. Um, again, I just, I don't think we get that level of meta-commentary from many movies. And this is one that does it. And honestly, to me, that feels pretty bold. Does it eventually go too far? Yes. I think, I think the use of, of Laurie's theme, the use of the original Halloween score, you know, the audio from the movie, I think that use later on in Halloween 3, I think it's just, it's a little shameless. And that, to me, it does, it goes too far. Um... And I think at that point, you almost missed the point of Halloween's inclusion and things here. Um, But nonetheless, I'm kind of okay with it. Then, fucking Ellie, she shows up. She enlists Dr. Chalice's help. Let me just point something out from the (laughs) get-go. I love this about this movie. Is it lazy writing? Yeah, sure. But this movie, on a couple occasions, it tries to write off certain details that the audience might be concerned about. Just write them off casually and move on. Um, how, how did Silver Shamrock get Stonehenge to Santa Mira? Well, Connell Cochran tells us, we had a time getting it here. You wouldn't believe how we did it. Okay, period. The end. No further explanation. Um, Ellie and Chalice, yum, screw each other. And afterwards, and not before, Chalice says to her, wait a minute, how old are you? Good timing, bud. And she says, "Relax, I'm older than I look." Okay, period. The end. <laughs> movies, movies should do that shit more often. Just like casually write off their plot holes. Back to the Future. Won't well, my parents recognize me? Nah, Marty. Don't worry about it. I've got to figure it figured out. Okay. Titanic. Jack, sorry. There's no room raft left on on this raft. Trust me. It's 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 just it's not gonna work, Jack. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> movies, they, they should do that anyway that's not the point the point is she says she's older than she looks but that's not true Stacy Nel- nelkin is 24 years younger than Tom Atkins so in 1982 when she when he was 46 she was 22 uh so I mean you know she was legal at least but uh she was not older than she looks when she shows up The movie, it injects some more social commentary. Uh, Again, this is a movie about a lot of things. I think it's kind of ambitious. Her dad ran this this little mom-and-pop shop. But Ellie says, you probably shop at one of the new malls. Remember that as Stranger Things 3 would not let us forget, the 80s were when malls started to pop up and wipe out small businesses. And this is a movie, again, This is a movie about the rise of corporations and our inclination to follow their lead. So it kind of makes sense that she would throw that note in. You know, I think I've made clear on this podcast, not a huge fan of movies trying to get super political, but I know that sometimes Carpenter does this in his work. I can forgive it here, um, and that I I think that first and foremost, they're trying to make a good movie. I don't think this is a movie like Black Christmas, the, the new Black Christmas, Black Christmas in name only, where it gets bogged down by its politics and focuses so much on sending a message that it, it's not even a good movie. right? I think this is a good movie first and foremost. I think it's trying to do some things behind the scenes. And artistically, I can respect that. Um, moving on a little bit. In the movie, <laughs> just have to say this, I do this impression all the time. It's not even right. I, I always say to people, I can't talk now, Linda. I'll call you Monday. That's not even how he says it. That's not even what the line is. Uh, but when, when he's when he's on the payphone, watch the scene. It's so far off. Um, but obviously, Dr. Chalice calls up Linda. Uh, he runs off with Ellie. He's lying to, to Linda, to his ex, about going to some boring doctor conference. And of course, of course, he can't remember the name of the, the hotel, but don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. It's just, do- it's just boring doctor stuff. Um, And I kind of find it funny that they named Nancy Keyes' character Linda since she played Annie and not Linda in, in the original Halloween. You might as well have just named her Annie and been done with it. But anyway, don't think about that too hard. It's a, Whatever. But if she had tuned in, here's my question. Okay. If, if, if Linda in this movie, former Mrs. Chalice, if she had tuned in to watch Halloween on TV, would she see herself? Okay, alright. Thinking about it too hard. Anyway. They drive to Santa Mira, which is a great choice of name, by the way. I, I think I think it's a really nice reference back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Apparently, this is interesting. Apparently in Nigel Neal's original script, it was a much more generic name, like Sun Hills. Um, I'm, I'm very glad they changed it. One thing about me is that I love when a movie can effectively establish a sense of mood and atmosphere. And now I'm hearing Dave McRae's voice. Sometimes my favorite part of a movie is just a simple moment when it does a really nice job combining the visual and the soundtrack to create that mood and atmosphere. And for me, in this movie, that's the drive to Santa Mira. When I think about this movie, this is the scene I think of. The music combined with the image of them driving to, in, into the heart of, of the California countryside um, and then passing the Welcome to Santa Mira sign. It's just it's great stuff. Um, and you have the people watching as they enter town. You have the guy in the alley. You have the surveillance camera. This is effective, kind of eerie, kind of unsettling stuff. I really like it. I think it's one of the high points of the movie, and I think it's a testament to how well this movie does in establishing a sense of atmosphere, which a lot, a lot, a lot of these low-budget B-movies from the 80s, these horror movies, could not establish half of the atmosphere that they do in a scene that really isn't all that scary. Um, so to its credit, I just want to point that out. Also, don't know if I told you guys, but this is a cynical movie. Chalice and Ellie, they're, they're checking into the motel and then... The Rose of Shannon, and, and then Buddy Kupfer and his, his fucking annoying family show up. And in the past, I've looked at this, and I've been like, I hate these characters. They're, they're like annoying Friday the 13th cannon fodder, and they cheapen the movie. And sometimes, for some reason, because of all the fucking bright, gaudy colors on display when they show up, I get like weird 90s Tim Burton vibes from the whole Encounter too. if that makes any sense. Um, And in the past, I haven't liked that either. But regardless of what I felt in the past, I have grown to think that these annoying assholes are very important to this movie because they fit the cynicism. Buddy is a moron who's enamored with Conal Cochran and his business success, and he doesn't have enough of a fucking brain to question the guy. Um, Like Chalice, Buddy is obsessed with his work and his wife is naggy. And you have this little boy... Uh, Buddy Copper Jr., who's a moron, like his dad, riding around on the bike like a little brat. The whole family is kind of just, it's, it's just very unlikable to me. That fits in perfectly with the movie's vision of the world. This movie, it was made by misanthropic people. And it's amazing. And that to me, that's why this movie is so different from the other Halloween movies. The other Halloween movies, they have a sense of heart somewhere in there. Halloween 78, Laurie is the heart of the movie. You root for Laurie, and you do the same in the sequel, even though she's barely a presence. She's really not a character like she is in the original. Um, Halloween 4 and 5, you are rooting for Jamie. Halloween 6, I think we like Kara. I think we like Tommy, uh, even though he's a little bit of a creep. Obviously, we like Loomis, who... Is, is older and more mellow, and Loomis is kind of a heart of these movies throughout. Um, Halloween H20, well, we get to root for Laurie again. Halloween Resurrection, we don't talk about. Uh, <laughs> Rob Zombie's movies, you 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 kind of, yeah, you, I, I would say you root for Laurie in the first one. The second one, depending on which cut you watch, you might hate her, but at the very least, I think you root for somebody like Annie and Brackett. They are the emotional heart of that movie. Uh, Halloween 2018, you root for Laurie. I I guess, I mean, you don't hate Allison, so maybe you root for her. Uh, You do root for Karen to die. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) In all seriousness, there are heroes in these movies. There's evil. Michael is evil. But there is also good. Halloween 3, I don't know if I can say that. I love Dr. Chalice, but he's a garbage human being. And Ellie, I guess I like. But the movie kind of leaves it up to interpretation, whether she was just a robot all along. So, any way you slice it, I think this is the one movie in the franchise where you seriously, you might not like anyone in this thing. And I don't don't think we're supposed to have good versus evil. I think it's all a very morally gray affair. This country's children, America's children, are dependent on a drunk, womanizing, deadbeat dad. And that says a lot about this movie's worldview. One of my favorite scenes. One of my favorite scenes is when this movie turns into a bad 80s like porno. It's so bad. Where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? That's a dumb question, Miss Grimbridge. My gosh, it's so bad. Um I had heard that Nigel Neal he wrote this script, but that his dialogue was just about completely rewritten. And I don't honestly know much about Neil's work. I know he made the, the Quatermass movies, if I'm saying that right. Um, don't know much about his work. And I don't mean to disrespect anybody who made this movie because I love this movie. But I also feel like Tommy Lee Wallace and some of these other guys going back and changing his dialogue is, is probably like Adam Levine rewriting Bob Dylan's songs. Um, apparently, the, the Cochrane monologue which is one of the best pieces of writing from any movie in this franchise. Not just just one of the best pieces of writing from this movie. It's one of the best pieces of writing from any movie in the franchise. Apparently, that's like one of the only parts of Neil's original script that's kind of left intact. I think they played around with little bits and pieces of it, but for the most part, that gives you a sense of what the dialogue was originally like. I go back and forth on this. The, The stupid dialogue adds some charm to it. But I do think it would have been nice to get some more respectable dialogue. You know, the point where, where Dr. Chalice is like, I think it's time for the Marines. <laughs> okay, bud. I get it, but like, okay. Um, I think it, it would have been interesting to hear some more of Ni- Nigel Neal's influence on that. But yeah, whatever. Um And you know, besides saying this is a cynical movie, I continue to say this movie is about a lot of things. Um I love that scene. When you have the hobo who's wandering around after curfew. By the way, Dr. Chalice is too. So, like, is anybody enforcing curfew? And doesn't Dr. Chalice go out to, like, a liquor store? So are stores still open after curfew? Anyway, don't think about it too much. Anyway, the hobo says that that Silver Shamrock didn't bring new jobs to the area. They just brought in people from the outside. And okay, sure, these are robots, as we find out later. But in 2020, when we are having debates about things like foreigners being brought into the country on work visas to take jobs that, you know, Americans could otherwise have. Um, when we have one side saying that these big corporations that bring jobs and opportunity, and you have the other side saying these corporations, you know, they ruin the community. They're not paying enough. Um, you know, they're exploiting workers. Uh, they should get out of here. Halloween 3 feels to me like an impressively prescient movie. And I understand any of the thought and the substance in this movie, you know, sure, it's under the guise of a weird B-movie. I I could interpret this hobo as a symbol of working class discontent with the broken promises of of the corporate world and class resentment, etc. But the fact remains that the hobo's here for two minutes and then he gets his head pulled off in a gross-out little sequence with Dick Warlock. Okay, I get that. But B-movies are movies too. And if a B-movie wants to try to be something more, if it wants to try to do something ambitious, we should let it, rather than saying, you're just a B-movie. I've always, always, I'm going to, sorry, again, not not to go off on a rant and not to, not to make you mad, because I know this is a polarizing thing, but I've always been so bothered by the people who have a problem with Zack Snyder's DC movies. You know, people who say they're pretentious or, or whatever they say. Let a filmmaker produce the movie they want to produce. And by the way, why do superhero movies have to be dumb, bubblegum fun for kids? Why can't a filmmaker produce what they want to produce? Can you imagine if Halloween 3 weren't trying to say anything at all? I think think it adds something, that there was an artistic intent behind it. I do. Anyway, off my rant. Back to the movie. We're back at The Rose of Shannon... And the only thing that is more awkward than the weird sex scene that we get is the fact that the woman who plays Marge Gutman, you know, the one who gets her face all fucked up and peeled back by the, the misfire, that was Tom Atkins' wife. And they later divorced. So, yeah, the whole thing is a little awkward. Anyway, this is it's our first glimpse of what a silver shamrock mask can do to you, or at least the mysterious chip in the back. Uh, apparently it causes bugs, and as we see later, like snakes, to just magically appear out of nowhere. Pretty dumb, but honestly, it adds a bit of grotesqueness, so I, I try to overlook this detail. Um, this movie, some of the imagery, it reminds me, and I'll I'll come back to this later, it reminds me of like Salvador Dali, when he tried to get into films, and he made Unche Nandala. Um, this kind of surrealist imagery that he used to horrific effect. I feel, like, I feel like this movie is similar to something like Prince of Darkness in John Carpenter's filmography In paying some homage back to that. Anyway, it's not super logical. It's very surreal. But I feel like that's kind of intentional. Um, I just think, when I watch this movie, I just think it's amazing that we live in a world where someone came up with this story. And I'm very thankful for the batshit insanity that's on display here. Even if sometimes the, fil- the filmmakers you know, kind of push the limits of logic, maybe too much, you know, I, I think I think it's amazing. And we should be very grateful that this movie even exists. Then, Conal Cochran, he finally shows up and he says, you know, there's a magnificent healthcare facility in the factory. Uh, Miss Gutman, she'll be taking care of there uh okay cool i I would surely believe that this shitty factory and this little shitty town in the middle of nowhere has a world class hospital inside of it cool um and chalice he kind of knows he kind of knows that something's going on here, but Ellie doesn't let him raise any objections lest they should get themselves in trouble um and this is a fascinating moment because I swear, I swear. Stacey Nelkin accidentally calls him Tom. I went back, I rewatched this moment about five times, and the last two I put captions on. She says something, and it sounds exactly like Tom. The captions completely ignore it, which makes me think they're trying to cover up the mistake. Go back, watch the scene, look for it. I don't think I'm crazy. I think she accidentally calls him Tom, which, whatever, I just think it's kind of interesting that she does it. To the movie's credit, to the movie's credit, and this is such a small detail, and I'll point a couple of these out, because I think this is a movie that has very subtle moments of artistry on display that we don't pay attention to. Um, there is a very cool little edit after they take the body away, where Chalice and Ellie, they return to the room, and and there's like a dissolved jump cut. Um, yeah. I, I guess that's how I would describe it. Um... Jump cut being like you have a shot of somebody in some place and then you jump ahead. Obviously, it's a little bit of a jarring shift. We know there's been a leap in time, but same person, um, same general um, place. Uh, you know, you might, they might have moved forward a little bit, but but generally, you know, we know we're looking at the same person and we know that we just jumped ahead. Um, this like dissolves. We have like a, a dissolve jump cut. I just, I think I think that's really cool. And the movie, as I said, it does these cool little things. The editor, whoever it was, apparently felt like being experimental. And I think it's amazing. Um, later in the movie, when they're walking around the factory, I can't quite describe this edit, but the camera is following the Kupfer family and Conal Cochran, and then one of the workers passes in front of the camera. And when the worker passes in front of the camera, suddenly, very sneakily, once they pass, it's a new shot. It's like they kind of matched up a shot of like a worker walking in front of the camera with another shot of a worker walking in front of the camera and cut between the two to subtly shift from Cup for Family and Connell Cochran to Chalice and Ellie. Again, that's the best way I can describe it. Go back, watch the scene when they're taking the tour of the factory. The editor was just letting loose with with cool little subtle edits. Um, And I think that's amazing. I know that people have said this movie feels like a made-for-TV movie. But I I feel like if you add these little creative touches, if you have that sort of creative freedom, if you add Kandi's cinematography, if you add the fact that the Silver Shamrock sequences were designed for a big screen, if you add the extra layers of commentary, I think this movie absolutely earns its place in a movie theater. So I continue to say, let's please get this on a big screen somewhere. Okay, anyway. One other small detail um, that I'm always obsessed with, the voice of the woman at the Silver Shamrock factory, like the, I guess she's a receptionist there or something. Her voice has long fascinated me since the first time I saw the movie. Um... It's just, her voice is so damn distinctive, and I did a little bit of research, and I learned the reason her voice stands out to me is because I've heard it in other things. She ended up becoming a voice actress for uh, movies and, and like animated stuff, uh, for, uh, for movies and shows like Batman the Animated Series. Uh, she did stuff for Hercules and then for the TV show that was made afterwards. She did uh, voices in The Little Mermaid. She did a lot of shit. And I just think I think it's such a cool detail that, that my ears, from the first time I saw this movie, my ears have perked up when I've heard that voice. Now I know why. I think it just it reminds me of stuff that I watched in my childhood, especially, especially Batman, the animated series, which they will never make a children's cartoon like that again. Anyway. If there's one thing you walk away with besides this being a cynical movie, I can't say enough how much Dan O'Hurley elevates this movie, and I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely love his performance as Con Cochran, because here's the thing: he's a fucking puppet master. Obviously, Ellie and Chalice are lying about being Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Cochran knows that. He's known for a while that these two are up to something. But he lets them believe that they're going to get away with it. And the fucking prankster he is, he pulls a prank on them. If you believe that Ellie's been a robot the whole time, well then that raises a lot of questions. But it also suggests that he orchestrated an even bigger prank on Dr. Chalice. I don't think it would make a whole lot of sense, but I like this guy a lot. He is an evil son of a bitch. He's evil. I will say, though, I hate when actors belittle the movies they were in. And I do have to acknowledge, O'Hurley said he did not think this movie was, quote-unquote, much of a picture. Here's the thing about Donald Pleasence. He was a great actor. He was like the big name for Halloween 78. Carpenter kind of needed a big name to legitimize the feature. Donald Pleasance could have disrespected the Halloween franchise, and he could have moved on with his life and done other things. Or he could have come back to play the role and been like, ah, you know, I don't respect these movies, I'm just doing it for the paycheck. But he didn't. Did he express, you know, some creative disagreements at times? Yes. Go back, read uh, his Fangoria interview during the filming of Halloween 5. He says uh, that the... That dumbass director wanted him to play Loomis very serious, and Pleasance didn't think that was the right call. But he said, you know, if that's what the director wants, I'll do it for the paycheck, and I'll put my own spin on it to keep it authentic anyway. But did he disrespect the Halloween movies? No. No. He might have had creative disagreements and done whatever the directors wanted for the paycheck, But Pleasance did not disrespect his character or the movies. In that same Fangoria interview, um, Pleasance, he dives into this really thought-provoking analysis of Loomis as a character, and he says he wants to keep playing him, and it seems a pity to think that he would stop playing Dr. Loomis. I think he famously said that he would play that character 22 times. He loved that character. To his credit, O'Hurley he says that he liked the role as Connell Cochran. But I could do without him giving into the pressure to demean and belittle a B-movie because you know that other people will think it's ridiculous. I will say, though, can you imagine Loomis taking on Connell Cochran? <laughs> Man, that, that would be some must-watch shit. But the whole movie would just be monologues, just dramatic monologues. Okay. <laughs> this is a cynical movie. <laughs> it's a cynical movie. We learn more in this factory tour. We learn more about Cochrane. And he's got all these gaudy little figurines around and, and buddies telling Chalice that Cochrane made his fame off of gags like sticky toilet paper. Let's just recognize. We got to think about this. Let's just recognize that in this movie, Cochrane is one of the most influential people in America. And All these fucking children are buying his masks. I don't think the movie communicates it as well as it could. But that, if you think about it, that makes Cochrane about as powerful as like somebody like Jeff Bezos, whose company, you know, is, is ubiquitous in our society. Everyone uses Amazon. In this movie's universe, everyone buys silver Shamrock masks. And the guy has all this power And he started off making cheap gag gifts. You're expecting somebody like Lex Luthor and instead you get Sticky Toilet Paper Man. And that, that to me is part of where the movie's cynicism comes in. But it's also where the fucking pitch black humor comes in. Because this is some dark shit. This is the type of humor that is so fucking black that you can't really laugh at it. Sticky Toilet Paper Man becomes one of the most influential men in America and then kills all the children. There are different kinds of satire. This is is juvenile. This is angry satire. Really not funny. And like, you can laugh at the movie. You can say it's absurd. But this is dark, satirical absurdism that is meant to say something about the state of America and the world. And it's saying something that's pretty damn fucked up. But it's interesting. I want to say one more thing. One more thing about the Silver Shamrock ad. We can talk all we want about how annoying it is but it also becomes a shockingly effective countdown to destruction it's like this is one big ticking time bomb when dr chalice is trying to call the police it's on in the background one more day till halloween 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 it becomes a reminder that we started on the 23rd and now we are running out of time and since i'm at that point in the movie I guess I will address whether I think Ellie was a robot all along. And to be honest, here's what I think. I think it's supposed to be ambiguous. And I think that says all you need to know. This is a movie where one of the maybe likable people, you know, um, somebody who seems to be a good person, right? You can't actually trust her because you don't know if she's been a human or if she's been a robot the whole time. I accept the ambiguity here as exactly what it is, because I think it reflects a deeper theme, a deeper message about humanity at this point in the 80s. It kind of, it harkens back to that scene in Halloween 1978, where Laurie cries for help, um, and then the neighbors, they turn their lights off instead of offering help. Horror requires despair. This movie takes... One potential beacon of light, um, you know, and it turns her into something that maybe we shouldn't have trusted all along. My guess, you know, if, if I step away from that cop-out answer, it's not a cop-out. I think artistically the ambiguity is, is brilliant. Um, but my guess, if I had to give you a guess, my guess is that probably she was a human at the beginning of the story. Because it just, it doesn't make complete sense otherwise. Also, she doesn't talk at all once once Chalice gets her. So like, she's just, she's acting weird. But still, I think the ambiguity is amazing. And the movie, the movie never outright says, she's a robot now, but she was a human before. And that to me feels like an intentional choice. Maybe not. Maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit. So be it. I'll give the movie too much credit. A minor side note. I know the shit that comes out of the robots uh, is is orange juice concentrate, but I am I the only person who thinks that it looks like egg yolks? That stuff is nasty. Um, here's a story that you didn't, you really don't need to know, but I'll share it. I remember the first time I saw this movie, it tapped into I was not expecting it. It tapped into a very deep seated fear that I've always kind of held in the back of my mind, and it's one of the most irrational, fucked up images I could imagine. When I was a kid, I had this dream that I fell, and I sliced my wrist on a piece of glass, and egg yolks dripped out. It was such a grotesque dream. Um, I mentioned before that Salvador Dali movie, Unche Andalou. If you haven't seen it, it's short. Um, it's this old, fucked up scary black and white movie Rob Zombie sometimes talks about how the movies that were produced in the pre-code era are so much more interesting than what was produced after he's talking about stuff like that and he's right it's fucked up watch it it's it it will be one of the more unsettling um I don't I think it's somewhere like 20 minutes it'll be one of the more unsettling 20 minutes of your life but it's also amazing anyway but egg yolks dripping from your wrist it feels like something that you would see in that movie but that's exactly what this looks like. Uh, I find it so eerily similar to that dream, and I love it. Um, But okay, dream analysis time is over. I will say, Dr. Chalice does a fucking awful job of wiping that shit off his hand. I think he could take some some hand-wiping cues from the robots. And I can't say enough. I cannot say enough. I love Connell Cochran. Once Chalice is captured, Cochrane turns into a full Bond villain, basically walking Chalice through, um, explaining the plan. Even though that's dumb, Bond villains are idiots who, who should just kill James Bond and not explain the plan. Sure, I get it. But still, this is amazing. One of the reasons that I love Conal conkren and I love Dan Hurley's performance, he is just... He is an amazing character actor. I love... Those old character actors who weren't afraid to be dramatic. I feel like today we live in a too-cool-for-school, ironic society where acting has really changed. Um, you don't get character actors like these old badasses, you know? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if they'd made Expendables-like movies you know, with, with these old character actors back in the 80s, uh, in the 70s, in the 60s? Uh, Movies like VFW, which just came out, had a lot of character actors in it. Imagine getting guys like Daniel Hurley and Donald Pleasance and Vincent Price in one movie together and and just letting them have a good time and have freedom to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do. I'll tell you what, that would be amazing. There is nothing, there's nothing better than a character actor. Um, If you haven't, if you haven't seen the Cinemassacre, Joe Bob Briggs videos, please watch them. Joe Bob talks about why he would always prefer a character actor to a movie star, and he's right. Not to get a sidetracked, but this movie's two biggest stars are Tom Atkins and Dan O'Hurley, and they're both incredible character actors, and the movie is amazing because of it. You couldn't have made this movie with a star. The movie, it wouldn't work if Harrison Ford was in the lead role. You need an everyman. Tom Atkins is an unpolished, real Pittsburgh guy, and no offense, Tom, I love you, but he's also a little gross in this movie. So it's perfect; it just works perfectly. Obviously, a lot has been said about the the final processing scene. So when we when we finally get to see what these masks do, and we learn a little more about what the plan is, um, you know, you have. Buddy Cuffer Jr., when, when we have his head melted down and his parents are killed by snakes and shit. This scene is incredible. It is so darkly subversive. Obviously, in 1982, we weren't completely immersed in the Friday the 13th slasher culture where teens flocked to see movies where they could have a fun time watching sexed-up assholes get killed, but we were kind of entering that period. Um, and, and the notion was that horror movies were, in a dark way, fun. Even if you went to see Halloween two the year before this, you probably had a good time. It was designed more, you know, more than the original was, as one of those movies, as I mentioned last week, where you get plenty of cannon fodder, you have a good time with your date, waiting to be scared when Michael pops up and kills people off. Obviously, the first two, Friday the 13th movies, they were hits for, uh, you know, for a similar reason. Um... That movie, you know, that franchise, wasn't yet a juggernaut, sure. But the point is, mainstream horror in 1982, it was often catering to teens who were in search of a good, fun night with a date. And this scene takes that trend, and it says, fuck you. Have a good time with this. And I would say Halloween 3, in spite of how fucking dark it is, yeah, I, th- I think it's a pretty fun time at the movies, but I can only imagine how shocked I would have been if I were seeing this for the first time in 1982 and I had no idea that I was going to watch a child writhing in pain as his brain is slowly turned to mush and snakes and spiders come pouring out of his Halloween mask. It's not a gory scene, but you want to talk about theater of the imagination? This is it. We don't get blood and shit in the scene. But you might as well. This is really effective theater of the imagination. I know that people were pissed about Michael Myers not being in this thing. But my guess is that walking out of the theater, the second thing that they said was, Mm -hmm. holy shit, they killed a kid. Because you just don't do that. And even if you look at horror movies where, where they do kill a kid, It's not like they revel in it like this movie does. This movie traps you in there with a cup for family, and it forces you to watch it go down while this awful music plays. It's atrocious, and it is effective. And that's one of the things that makes this great horror. I will say, one question that I've always had about this movie, especially in the aftermath of of, that scene, it's a pretty fascinating one that I just can't quite decide. I, I, I think I feel a certain way about it. You guys can chime in on Twitter if you want. Who is more evil, Michael Myers or Conal Cochran? Um, Because those two are, if you think about it, they're the two antagonists of the franchise. I guess I guess we could add the man in black. I won't really address him right now. But compare Michael Myers and Connell Cochran. Who's more evil? Uh, Michael Myers, he's motiveless. He's a motiveless killer. He's what Loomis calls pure evil. But as I've said, we seem to have implicit rules for Michael. It seems that he doesn't kill kids, for example. It seems like he draws a line somewhere. Um, Now, in the 2018 movie, if we want to count that, well, he does kill a kid, but... If we are going to count twenty eighteen, then we should also address the fact that in that movie, it seems like he just kills because he's like a dumb animal, and it's just—it's like an instinct. Um, in that movie, it's—it's it's almost like he just does it without recognition of the fact that he's doing it. Connell Cochran, on the other hand, Connell Cochran knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> I sound like Marco Rubio in that that one presidential debate where he kept repeating the same line um, and Chris Christie, like, jumped on him. Connell Cochran knows exactly what he's doing. And he's killing children. He will kill anyone he needs to kill in order to make this sacrifice and return Halloween to its roots. Um, Ultimately, though, he's just... He's a nihilistic prankster. This is a prank on the children. So in a way, he's got a motive, but he's also just kind of like, ah, fuck it. To him, wiping out tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of children, and I'm assuming their parents will get killed too, at least some of them because the Cutford parents were killed, um, this damn, it's like a prank. So I, I would have to argue. Who's more evil? Maybe Connell Cochran. Not to say he's the better villain, obviously. You can't top Michael. And and I think I think there will always be something scary about the ambiguity of Michael. But Cochrane is an evil bastard, and I love it. It gives you chills to see the look on his face when the Kupfer family is dead. Um, everyone talks about the montage where you see all the kids trick-or-treating, so I don't want to focus on that too much. But I do want to point a couple of things out. One of which maybe you haven't noticed before. First of all, I love this montage. Let's acknowledge this movie had a budget of $2.5 million. In today's money, that would be like $6.6 million. So we're talking like a Bloomhouse micro-budget movie. And think about the scope here. This is a much larger scope than any other Halloween movie. You're talking about a national genocide. That's really, that's what we're talking about. So somehow, you have to take this from a movie that feels like a little mysterious, intimate horror movie in a strange, small town, and you have to turn it into a movie with national stakes. Obviously, all these clips were just filmed in California and labeled as other parts of the country, but you know what? This is about as effective as it gets. This is the quick, simple way to show that not only is time running out, But all of this nation's children are out and about wearing their silver shamrock masks. And now, again, you have to put yourselves in the shoes of an audience member in 1982. You didn't know the significance of the silver uh, silver shamrock jingle, or what the company was, or who Connell Cochran was, or what the plan was. So when you first heard that song at the beginning of the movie, it was just so damn annoying. You might have known that maybe something was up, But you probably didn't expect Marge Gutman to get her face blown off by one of the chips. You probably didn't expect to see uh, Buddy Cufford Jr. get killed. You probably didn't expect that Conal Cochran was preparing to sacrifice all of America's children in the name of returning Halloween to its Samhain roots. So now that you're seeing that ad, you're hearing the jingle, and you are seeing all these kids trick-or-treating, it lends a whole new tone and a new urgency to the movie. This is it's the fullest realization of that ticking time bomb that makes the movie so effective. And here's the other thing. This is the thing that i maybe you haven't noticed. I didn't notice it until this last time watching it. Uh, I mentioned before that whoever edited this thing felt like they just had creative freedom to be experimental. Awesome. Awesome subtle editing trick on display. I think it's an editing trick. Um, look in the montage. Look at the Seattle clip. Look at the kids trick-or-treating. When the van passes, they're gone. It's so fucking subtle. It's like the van is driving through and you have a bunch of kids in the background. When the van passes by, they're gone. I don't know how that effect was produced. I doubt that they were like, okay, kids, run away, get out of the frame now. I don't think logistically they would have been able to pull that off. It looks like it was an editing trick. I, I don't know why why there are so many cool editing tricks throughout. I think it's very, very cool, though, that the editor had that freedom to do that. Go back, look at it. Really, really impressive little jumping time. And a very subtle jump in time. Um, and sometimes, you know, I wonder, okay, all the kids are gone. I wonder if it's like a little you know, metaphor of like you know, all the kids are going to be dead. I don't know. It also, though, it's one of those things that makes me think of The Shining. Um, Kubrick he throws in visuals that are off-putting illogical but they're subtle so it's kind of subconscious like um, the fact that um, when when um, uh, when Jack Torrance is going in for his interview you have playboy uh, in in the office you know when when he's waiting for the interview completely illogical and it, it kind of clues our brain into the fact that something isn't right here, but we don't know what it is. And in some ways, we don't even know that our brain is panicking about the fact that that something isn't right. So like all those little details that we might notice subconsciously are creating a sense of fear and unease. This feels like one of those little moves where it creates a sense of unease, and we don't even know that that they did that. Um, So I just want to say, great editing, great editing. And because I love the guy, this would be my last chance to do so, you know, at least as long as I'm only talking about the Halloween franchise. I want to give Dean Cundy credit. Because in the scene where Teddy gets murdered with the power drill, note the use of negative space at the beginning of the scene when she's on the phone. You, you see her on the phone, but you also can see into the next room. You see kind of the, a darkened room next to it, and you see a, a room with the light on. That is kept in the frame, and you know, you know. That, that space is going to be filled, and yes, eventually a robot shows up and fills that space. It feels like a classic Carpenter move, and I can't help but think that is Dean Kundys' contribution. Just want to say, he's incredible. This movie would not be what it is without Dean Cundy. And now is probably a good time to say something. I know this probably makes sense to you guys because you're listening to this podcast and you love these movies and you love horror movies, but for as dark as this movie is, is it just me or is this just absolute cinematic comfort food? There is something that is so satisfying to me about sitting down and being immersed in the mood and the atmosphere of this film, and my guess is that I'm not alone in saying that. So thank God for us weirdos who get it. And now let's talk about the monologue. I don't know if this is my favorite scene, but it might be. Conal Cochran's monologue. I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but I'm not a person who... I'm not somebody who, who pays a lot of attention to the quality of acting. I don't often notice it. I don't walk away from movies like saying, wow, what an incredible performance. Sometimes, sometimes I do, but usually I don't. Um, only a few performances, you know, for example, have struck me as incredible in recent memory. For example, I think Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood put on, on one of the most quintessential movie star performances I've ever seen. It blew me away. Blew me away. Here's another one. You were about to hate me. And stop listening to this podcast. And this is the third strike. This comes up again. Sorry. Whether you think it's your Lex Luthor or not. I do think that Jesse Eisenberg steals the fucking show. In Batman vs. Superman. I think he chews up scenery in every scene that he's in. And I will go to my grave thinking that. So I think once in a while there are some performances. That I notice that I, I think are completely underrated. And they blow me away. But beyond that. I think I think most of the people who are nominated for Oscars every year, most of these movie stars, not to say that I could do it, because I couldn't. I do think they're a little bit overrated. But I swear, every time I watched Dan O'Hurley just tearing into this fucking incredible monologue, I think this is one of the best acting moments that I've ever seen in any movie, ever. And I know that's a bold statement, but I'm going to make it. I assume at this point, I haven't mentioned this, but I assume that you've seen Halloween 3. If you haven't, what the fuck are you doing here? Shame on you. Um, Go watch it. But if you have, the minute that this podcast is over, you need to go and watch that monologue. Tell me it's not a pitch-perfect performance. And he doesn't even, it's not like he's trying too hard. All he's doing is using his eyes and using his inflection. And that is all it takes. It's an unforgettable film moment for me. Um, and, and then when he says, oh, and happy Halloween, look at his face. His face says so much. It speaks volumes. It's a look of, of like sarcasm, like a little bit of a fuck you to this guy who's trying to stop him. Um, which also goes along with the fact that he just put a skull mask on his face, which is like a little visual gag as if to say, no, you're dead. But that look, it's also a look of disgust, as if to say mainstream culture turned Samhain into Halloween and watered it all down. But tonight, we get our revenge. So, happy Halloween. Enjoy it. It's masterful. The performance is masterful. Unfortunately, that's the last great Connell Cochran moment we get. Uh, because then he decides to let Chalice escape because he's too busy talking on the phone with customers, even though... When you're about to kill everyone off, why does customer service matter? They will all be dead. Okay, whatever. Uh, Also, his death is incredibly stupid. He's like, he's turned into a glowing marshmallow or something. Um, You have to try to write such an anticlimactic ending. But, to its credit, in typical Halloween 3 fashion, it is not just a matter of good guy wins, the end. Obviously, we get the Ellie twist. Um, there's a video on YouTube of this scene, and I watch it once in a while when I want a good laugh, because you have literally four jump scares in the span of like two or three minutes, and the one with the arm is my favorite. That puts it over the top. It always gets me. It's just, it's funny shit. But also, while this is kind of a fun horror moment, the look that Chalice gives as he runs away is heartbreaking, and it reflects the darkness that this movie isn't afraid to own. He knows Ellie's dead, and whereas a lesser movie might have ignored the implications of that death and moved on to keep the plot moving, you know, for example, note how Halloween 2018 basically ignores Ray's death, uh, Ray's death, Ray's death once he's dead. This movie is not afraid to acknowledge the implications. It's quick, but I really appreciate that. And then you have the PA's resistance, the ending. At some point, I want to do a ranking of the Halloween movie endings. But let me say this. This one is up there, guys. Um, Let's not talk about the, the quality of the ending, because I'll save that for a ranking video. But let's think about this. Obviously, the Halloween movies, they don't end on hopeful notes. Probably the most optimistic endings are Halloween H20 and Halloween 2018. Maybe. Maybe Halloween 2018. Even then, it's a little ambiguous. But I would say, well, and it's not just ambiguous. We know that it doesn't work out because of Halloween Kills. But you have to realize, they made that movie assuming that maybe we won't get a chance to make a sequel. So, you know, if they had never made another movie, Michael, Michael was dead. Okay, so look at it that one. But I would say that this movie's ending is the worst, darkest ending. I don't mean worst as in quality. It's the darkest ending. Halloween 4, I think, is in the running because, you know, Jamie, who you've been rooting for the whole movie, is now a killer. And I think that's kind of a, a bleak notion. But this movie, it literally has the balls to kill all the kids in America. And I mean, I, I, I guess Dr. Chalice could have stopped it, but I think we all know he doesn't. And that pretty much tells you all you need to know. The country's last best hope was a drunken... Deadbeat dad, who was forced to kill his little girlfriend after she was turned into a robot, and now he's trying to save his kids and all the kids in America, and he fails, and all the kids are killed, and Conal Cochran wins. And Conal Cochran, by the way, is the sticky toilet paper man who somehow became one of the most powerful people in the world because consumers are idiots. This is a batshit crazy movie, and yeah, it has its flaws, but it's the darkest damn movie in the whole franchise. And yes, I do think it's one of the best movies of the 80s. I think it's a little bit of a time capsule movie. I think it says something about the state of society and the economy and America, etc. in the 80s. Sure, it's a bold statement. But you know what? I'll stand by it. Joe Bob Briggs, I mentioned him before. He once gave this movie two stars. He said he was being generous. But Joe Bob, obviously he's not listening to this. But he's got to revisit this thing. He has to reevaluate it on its own merits. This is a four-star movie, guys. So, to plagiarize Joe Bob, check it out. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. One quick note. i got to throw some support to one of the guys who inspired me to make this podcast a reality. Uh, Dave McRae, he's trying to get a Black Christmas short film going. He's got a teaser on his channel. It's called It's Me, Billy. I'm guessing maybe you've you've heard of it at this point. Um, he has an Indiegogo campaign going to make this thing happen. The guy does a hell of a job with his fan films. He knows his stuff when it comes to this kind of thing. I think it's going to be awesome. So if you can, be sure to help um, and contribute any way you can. Um, you know, let's try to make It's, it's Me, Billy a reality. I, again, I think it will be awesome. But just want to throw some support his way. Dave inspired me. One of the, the biggest inspirations for this podcast. Uh, You know, I listen to him every day. So Dave is the man. But anyway, that's all I got. Uh, If you want to let me know that I'm a complete fool, be sure to reach out on Twitter. Otherwise, we will be back in Haddonfield next week with Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Um, And I'm looking forward to that. So until then, seven more days till the next episode, next episode, next episode, seven more days till the next episode, The Haddonfield Report. I'm an idiot. All right, guys. Have a wonderful week, everybody. And we'll see you again soon on the Hattonfield Report.